You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. You'd think that this would be one of the last places you'd look for life. After a four decades long slumber, the world's largest active volcano is now spewing molten lava and raining ash near the very top of Hawaii's Big Island. Spewing lava and belching noxious fumes, volcanoes seem implacably hostile to biology. But the search for life off Earth includes the hunt for these hotheads on other moons and planets, and that may seem contradictory. So why do scientists say that these dramatic fissures in the Earth's crust and the tectonic forces below produce more than dramatic geology, but are essential to our existence? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, we tour some of the most imposing volcanoes in the solar system, and many are not on Earth. What does the infernal condition of Venus suggest about the possibility of life there? Find out why the presence of biology on a planet or moon is tied to the restless churning of its depths. This crashing, colliding, erupting episode is Life in the Solar System. In his classic sci-fi story, Journey to the Center of the Earth, Jules Verne made the trip easy for his intrepid explorers. They simply dropped into a volcano to reach the bowels of Earth. Once there, they walked through miles of an interior labyrinth and even sailed on a subterranean river. Interesting enough to turn into a 1959 movie. It's a sea. It's an ocean with waves and currents. The ocean of the underworld. Some earthquake before the beginning of history cracked wide open the great sea and through the fissures poured this. The fissures closed again. No map ever recorded the Sognusse motion. Well, since the book's publication in 1864, engineering hasn't advanced enough that we can actually travel to Earth's core. But instruments like seismometers can tell us what's going on down there. That is, they can look deep into the interior through the crust or lithosphere. Okay, that's easy. But they can continue through the next layer, what's called the asthenosphere. And they can travel even deeper to the mantle and on through the two parts of the planet's core. The molten outer core, which is made primarily of liquid iron and nickel, 
and finally onto the solid core at the Earth's center. And recently, one such journey revealed a big surprise at that core mantle boundary. So we did an investigation and we found evidence for almost basically a new layer in the Earth. Samantha Hansen, a geologist at the University of Alabama, and her team detected material of unusual density slowing down seismic waves 1,800 miles below our feet. The reason for these low velocity zones is kind of remarkable. We've come to the conclusion that the best explanation for these, these weird spots is subducted oceanic material that was once at the surface but has been carried down into the Earth's interior and has accumulated in different size piles on that boundary. In other words, they think that Earth's interior has not a Jules Verne river, but something else with a watery theme, remnants of an ancient ocean seafloor. Once part of the crust, the layer is now sandwiched between Earth's scorching hot liquid core and the mantle. Incredible. I mean, you, you talk about reaching the depths of the ocean. Well, these ocean floors are even deeper than any others. <laughs> well, Seth, it is really incredible. Uh, how is it that they were able to detect the, the contours of this boundary layer? Well, they're using sound waves, seismic waves, if you prefer, produced by earthquakes in the southern hemisphere to, you know, probe the interior of our planet. These sound waves travel through the earth and, you know, eventually some of them reach the surface where a seismometer can record the bounced waves, and with a little bit of interpretation, a little bit of mathematics, you can figure out what's down there. In some places, the accumulations of this material are only about five kilometers thick, or maybe less. In some places, it's much, much thicker, about 40 to 50 kilometers. But there's a lot of variability. And I guess just to put that in some context, the tallest mountains, quote unquote, Um, or these these biggest peaks that we've imaged are five times the size of Mount Everest. If you'd asked me before this uh, discussion here, I would have said, well, anything that far down in the earth, I mean, it's just so hot, everything is molten. It's just like, you know, K-Rose syrup, but really hot syrup. So it's actually uh, not molten because you're right, temperature is getting higher as you increase in depth inside the earth, but pressure is also going up too. And while, of course, a hot temperature promotes melting, a very high pressure actually impedes melting. It's, it's going to fight that. And at some point, the pressure wins out. And so it actually keeps everything in a solid state, at least inside the mantle. Okay, so you have pieces down there, which you've characterized as being, you know, the remains of, well, an ocean floor. That's incredible. I mean, the idea that something as near to us as an ocean floor, it's a couple of miles down in most places, has made it all the way down a thousand miles or more toward the center of the earth. How how long did that take? Um, it can vary, but it's not as long. Well, on human time spans, a long time. Um, you're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of one to 200 million years which again, by human standards, that's a very long time. But considering our planet is 4.6 billion years old, that's pretty short as far as the Earth cycle is concerned. When the crust was a seafloor, Earth had already been carpeted with life for billions of years. Dinosaurs were around and giant marine reptiles like pleosaurs would have swum over it. So Samantha Hansen's work gives us a vivid portrait of the interior of our restless planet. Imagine 
millions of years ago at a subduction zone where one tectonic plate dives under another, an ancient seafloor was pulled deep into the earth like the strap of a hapless handbag at the end of a conveyor belt. But what does this have to do with volcanoes? Well, all that oozing, belching, and exploding that volcanoes just love to do is driven by heat. And the deep earth boundary structure that Dr. Hansen's team discovered plays a role in how heat is transferred through the earth. These features that we found in the deep earth, because they likely help to control the temperature in that part of the planet, they may actually control where we get these mantle plumes or these hot spots. So just the distribution of where you have those types of volcanoes might be partially controlled by this structure, which is really, really quite something. Does any of this material ever come back up through volcanoes? Yes. So this material gets subducted into the earth, and over time it gets entrained, things mix up. You know, you do have partial melting going on. The mantle is basically one big recycling system. So over time, this material does get recycled and, and churned about. Um, and yes, there are places where it can come back out. So for example, uh, Hawaii, which sits on what we call a mantle plume or a hot spot, and that is a, a little spit of hot material that originates down in this area, deep in the earth, and then ascends all the way to the surface to create those volcanoes in Hawaii. So those are the types of places where this material may eventually come back out again. Maybe you can elaborate on this a little bit, because really what we're trying to understand here, I suppose, is how heat circulates in the interior of the Earth. Our, our planet is still plenty warm, and uh, you know this heat has to go somewhere. It has to do something. Yeah, so all heat um, that's generated inside the planet eventually has to escape out the surface, right? It's like boiling a pan of water on the stove. The heat has to escape out the top. The sources of heat inside our planet, there's two main sources. One is um, radioactive decay, so you have unstable elements that break down over time. They give off energy, and part of that's heat. That's not really what we're looking at here. The other source of heat is really from inside the core, uh, which dates all the way back to the formation of our planet, and that heat is also escaping and slowly making its way to the surface. But because you have this extra layer of material that we've imaged at the boundary between the mantle and the core, it's sort of like throwing a blanket over the core. So by having that extra layer there, it kind of buffers or modulates how much heat would be coming out. And so it's going to play a pretty important role in how that temperature condition you know, fluctuates and, and changes in that part of the planet. So, okay you found this very interesting boundary layer deep inside the earth and so forth. How does that help us understand, you know, the planet in a very general sense? I mean, if I gave you a cousin of earth, another planet, the same size as earth, and maybe receiving the same amount of energy uh, from its home star as we receive from the sun. I mean, would you expect the same sorts of phenomena to be taking place on that world as well as on Earth's? Not necessarily, because again, a lot of this is driven by plate tectonics, and plate tectonics, as far as we know, is fairly unique to our planet. So without plate tectonics, you don't have that way to get these materials positioned like the ones that we've seen. Um, if there's a planet out there that we don't know about yet that has this, maybe. 
Um, Mars may have, back in the day, had plate tectonics, but it doesn't anymore. So um, I think as far as understanding other planets, it might be a little limited because, again, they don't have the same processes we do. But for understanding the Earth system, all of these pieces are related to one another. And by looking at these different pieces, we get a much better understanding of how our planet works. But one more thing. You'll recall that we said tectonics help make life possible on this planet. Well, here's one way that the heat that drives tectonics that produces volcanoes does just that. The core is primarily, at least the outer core, is molten metal. So as that molten metal churns and moves, um, that's ultimately what's leading to the development of our magnetic field. So how that behaves really is controlled by how heat is escaping from the core. Well, of course, this layer that we found helps modulate that. So there's that connection there, too, between heat coming out of the core and the formation of our magnetic field. And without that magnetic field, we don't exist on this planet, <laughs> or nobody does, because it's very hard to have life without that safety net, you know, blocking solar radiation. They actually think this is what happened on Mars. Um, it's thought that Mars ha used to have a magnetic field very similar to Earth's, but um, many billions of years ago, for reasons we don't completely understand, it stopped. The, the, the whole um, internal structure shut down and the magnetic field went away. So without a magnetic field, as I've, as I've already said, it's very hard to sustain life because you're constantly getting bombarded with radiation from the sun, which is really damaging to living organisms. Well, Samantha Hansen, thank you so very much for speaking to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. University of Alabama geologist Samantha Hansen describing the work of her team studying the unusual features of the deep earth that are involved with temperature phenomena that dictate everything from the formation of volcanoes to the strength of our planet's magnetic field. And you know, Molly, that's a point that's often overlooked. Our magnetic field, you know, is essential to life indeed. It isn't just for making sure that compasses point the same way. It actually serves to deflect high-speed atomic-sized particles that fly through space and that would otherwise make us very sick very quickly. You know, maybe on another planet, life learns to get underneath a rock or has some other protection. But certainly, Earth-style life on another world without a magnetic field, a no-go. But how do these principles apply to other planets with volcanism, such as Earth's sister planet and the possibility of life on it? Venus has its own situation going on, so it's a bit complicated. We know someone who can help make it simple. He and his team have created a new map that shows the stunning number of volcanoes on Venus. Most of the planet, about 80% of the planet, is low-lying volcanic plains, and it's those plains that are just festooned with individual volcanoes. Also, why studying volcanoes is a kind of time travel. They kind of preserve a moment in, in time that's not like even close to like the tininess of human history, like over billions of years. So if you kind of find these sarcophagi of like, you know, very ancient molten rock, then you can kind of read the history of, of an entire planet and compare it to others. Like, why is Earth really habitable, but Venus right next door is awful? You know, why does Mars have the biggest volcanoes on the planet, but now it looks like it's dead? Like, what's happening? All of that coming up 
This episode is Life in the Solar System on Big Picture Science. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. surface temperatures on Venus are hot enough to melt lead, 900 degrees Fahrenheit, so landers on the surface have a hard time. Nonetheless, we have steadily improved the picture we have of our sister planet. In the early 1990s, NASA's Magellan spacecraft provided our first detailed images of the entire surface of Venus before dramatically plunging into its dense atmosphere and being incinerated. And by the way, that was the planned finale to that mission. The data, however, from Magellan live on. Scientists have used them recently to create an updated map of the planet's volcanoes. Computing technology just didn't really exist to enable people to do the kinds of things we can do now, which is run the entire global map on a computer, on a desktop, and zoom in and zoom out and pan and move around and map the way we are used to doing for, say, Mars and the Moon. And here to discuss what the new map suggests about the interior of Venus and our search for life there is a scientist whose surname is surprisingly appropriate for a discussion of this blistering world. So my name is Paul Byrne. I am an associate professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Paul, let's start with what your volcanic map of Venus revealed. Now, looking at this map uh, that has dots to indicate the volcanoes, the dots are like a pointillism painting. They're everywhere. It looks like volcanoes cover the whole surface of Venus. Is that true? Uh, I think it is. Yeah, in the main, it is. Uh, So this map consists of more than 85,000 individual volcanoes. Uh, The mapping was led by uh, my graduate student, Rebecca Hahn. So the way we put the map together was to take these global images we have from the Magellan radar image data set. In a painstaking process, Becca went area by area, zone by zone, identifying the individual landforms that we felt we could say were volcanoes. Now, the vast majority of these are dots. Like you say, it's like a pointillism painting. The vast majority of these things we found are so small that although we can see them on the image data, the radar image data we have from Magellan, we can't be completely sure of how big they are. But most of the planet, about 80% of the planet is low-lying volcanic plains, and it's those plains that are just festooned with individual volcanoes. Could you tell whether or not they had been active or have been recently active, And, and was that something new? That is not something we could determine. In the future, There will be new missions to Venus, and they will offer the opportunity to go back and compare what they see to what we had with Magellan. But for our purposes, we were not looking, we were not able to look for evidence of ongoing eruptions. If we saw, for example, a young lava flow, and young, I'm using air quotes, right? We might see things that look relatively fresh, which might be consistent with their being geologically young, but that doesn't mean they happened recently uh, in human sense. And even if we saw one of those things, again, it doesn't mean that it was a recent event. 
So for our purposes, we are able to, with this catalog, identify places where there are lots of volcanoes or places where there are relatively few volcanoes. Before we get to what's happening in the planet's interior, Paul, would we expect volcanoes on Venus to behave the way they do on Earth? That is, erupting with ash or spewing noxious gas or lava? I mean, do the physics work the same on our uh, sister planet? So our starting assumption is yes. Here's what we see. We see lots of lava flows, including lavas cascading from the summits or from other vents on big volcanoes, exactly like we see on Earth. So certainly in terms of how lava comes out, that's almost certainly the same, which incidentally is exactly what we see on some of the big volcanoes on Mars. And that tells us that there's probably some fundamental physics driving how volcanoes erupt vis-a-vis flows. Now, on lots of volcanoes that have lavas, these volcanoes can also erupt ash-rich explosions. We have never seen a single image of a volcano in the act of erupting on Venus, so we don't know for sure this happens. In terms of stuff coming out of the volcanoes, like gases, so there's there's loads of different things coming out of volcanoes. There's three main ones. There's water, there's sulfur dioxide, SO2, and carbon dioxide, CO2. All volcanoes on Earth and on Venus. Well, certainly on Earth, we see those things. They're common. And one of the ways we have of determining or identifying a volcanic eruption on Earth is, say, we can see a plume that will contain water vapor, let's say. We have no idea what comes out of volcanoes on Venus, but we have some circumstantial evidence that is that is at least consistent with this stuff like this coming out of volcanoes. There's a global layer of clouds on Venus, and those clouds are sulfuric acid, H2SO4. And we know chemically that one of the ways you can make H2SO4 is if you add H2O, water, and SO2, sulfur dioxide. Those two things come out of volcanoes. So there's, I think, pretty compelling evidence that there are volcanoes on Venus, that they have been and remain active, and they're pumping out into the air the same stuff they do on Earth. How did the number of volcanoes on Venus compare to the number on Earth, just to give us an order of magnitude of just how, how busy this planet is? I don't think we know. I don't think we know how many volcanoes are on Earth. And the reason I don't think we know that is because the majority of volcanoes, not necessarily by size or by eruptive vigor or even frequency, but the majority just by number, are on the seafloor. And we do not have a good survey yet of the seafloor at the resolution we would want to be able to go and do the kind of study that we did for Venus. In fact, a paper came out in the last week or two where there's now about a quarter, a little less than a quarter of the entire ocean floor is now available at high resolution, which means this catalog for Venus is likely much more complete than any similar catalog for Earth. Now, the majority of things on Venus are small. And that's the case for the seafloor, the seamounts on Earth, too. When you say small, are we talking the size of an anthill or of a house? Of a, you know, What is a small volcano, according to geologists? So, so if you ask five geologists, they'll give you seven answers to that question. There's no, there's, <laughs> you don't have a uniform cutoff for small. In the context of Venus, a small volcano, in our case, is a volcano less than about five kilometers or three miles across. Um, there's a massive difference in how those volcanoes are distributed on Earth versus on Venus. Now, I'm talking about the big ones, the ones like Mount St. Helens or Etna or even the Hawaiian volcanoes. But in particular, those volcanoes that are that are known to be explosive, like Mount St. Helens, those volcanoes are aligned in chains. And the reason they're aligned in chains is tied to plate tectonics. And what we do not see on Venus are volcanoes forming very well-defined lines. But we do not see neat lines of volcanoes associated with areas where we might see subduction, which is what the case we see on Earth. 
Now on Earth, of course, you have this slow heat loss. Do you have the same kind of churning of a liquid outer core that might create a magnetic field? Um, do you have, if not plate tectonics, any kind of tectonics? Or do you have, for example, Venus quakes? What's happening on the interior? So the shorter answer is we've no idea. The longer answer is we can begin to extrapolate, and, and in part from observations of where the volcanoes are. So first off, Venus has no measured magnetic field. So if it does have one today, which we can't say for sure it doesn't, but if it does, it's super weak. Certainly we haven't detected it. But in terms of there being activity, none of that rules out there being activity. And to your point, first off, we know there have got to be Venus quakes, or at least there must have been in the past, because the surface abounds with tectonic structures. It has faults all the way down. And these faults look like faults we see on Earth and on other worlds. And on Earth, where those happen, we certainly get quakes. And, and perhaps this would be a good time to distinguish between tectonics and plate tectonics. So what you're saying is right. a planet can be tectonically active without plate tectonics. So what is what does tectonic refer to? So the word, I've, I've looked this up because I have long wondered, what do we mean? Tectonic to a geologist does not necessarily invoke plate tectonics. Tectonic has its root in the same word as architecture. And it really means how something is structured, and then in, in the case of tectonics, how it deforms or how it breaks. So a tectonic structure can absolutely readily form without the involvement of plate tectonics. There are huge tectonic structures on the moon, on Mars, on Mercury, on asteroids, on icy satellites, on Venus, that we know aren't because of plate tectonics, but are still driven by stress. Uh, plate tectonics arguably is, in fact, a pretty unusual thing to see. And I've often said to my students, in some respects, Earth is a terrible place to learn geology because it turns out it is not representative of most places in the inner solar system or really the solar system generally. And is that the description that you gave? Some of the conditions, the geologic conditions that gave rise to life on this planet and that on Venus it missed the mark? Is that one of the things that we're explaining here? That's one of the big questions. So I, I will caveat by saying in our papers, we don't yet make the jump to, to the habitability. However, plate tectonics has been proposed by some to be really important for habitability. And here's why. We know from the very earliest samples of earth rock, I mean, the various area samples we have are mineral grains from rocks. And those mineral grains, we think, formed in the presence of water. And they're almost as old as earth. And what those tell us, those little mineral grains is, very soon after Earth formed and after the moon forming impact occurred, conditions had calmed down enough on the surface of Earth that liquid water was stable. It has been cool enough that water has been liquid. Now, the way we think it's doing that, it's something like plate tectonics. It might not be plate tectonics in the sense that it has today, but one of the things plate tectonics does is that it draws carbon in the form of weathered minerals into the interior. Carbon when combined with oxygen, the CO2 is a potent greenhouse gas. And you need a little bit of greenhouse going on to say, we think, stop early Earth freezing because the sun was much dimmer than it is today. But the point is that if Earth has had liquid water on its surface stably for most of its life, 4.4 billion years, it's had to have some mechanism of keeping its climate regulated. And we think at least now the best mechanism we can think of is plate tectonics. It may not be the only one, but it's efficient. If that's the case, what it probably did was it stopped CO2 building up to the point where it would trigger a runaway greenhouse effect. 
as it did on Venus, as it did on Venus. As it did on Venus. That leads us to a really interesting and important thing about Venus that we don't have the answer to yet, which is what was early Venus like? Because it's possible Venus today is is just hell on Earth, figuratively. It's hell on Venus. Hell on Venus. It's 90 times room pressure on Earth. It's 90 times that. So it's equivalent to almost a kilometer under the water on Earth. And it's the temperature of a self-cleaning oven. It's just horrible conditions. We don't know if it was always like that. It's possible it was. It's possible that because Venus formed relatively close to the sun, it was never able to cool down enough. And as a result, it just entered this runaway greenhouse state early on where it simply was not able to release the heat it was getting from the sun and from other sources of heat like impacts. And as a result, just went terrible. However, in the last few years, climate studies have shown that it's at least possible that Venus was able to cool down enough to get water to condense into liquid form on its surface, like we know early Earth did, and that it might actually have stayed in this relatively habitable condition until perhaps as recently as a billion years. Billion years isn't recent, but it means that for much of solar system history, there could have been two relatively habitable large rocky worlds in the solar system. And then some climate catastrophe befell Venus, the most likely explanation for which is a big series of volcanic eruptions that just coincidentally were timed such that they overwhelmed whatever mechanism Venus had of regulating its climate, possibly plate tectonics like Earth has today, and it triggered this runaway greenhouse. So all that is to say that plate tectonics might not be the only thing you need, but it might be a really important ingredient in keeping conditions habitable on the surface of a planet for long enough for life to get a foothold. It seems scientists are concluding, and and certainly with the description you've given of Venus, that there's little possibility for life near the surface of the inferno known as Venus. But what about in the milder temperature clouds and atmosphere above? Could there be life existing there, some sort of microbial life? So it's been proposed for decades. It was actually Carl Sagan who originally in the 60s hypothesized there could be conditions in the upper Venus atmosphere where life might thrive, certain microbial life. And it is it is a really interesting quirk, I find, that as hellish as the surface of Venus is, the middle atmosphere and around altitudes of, say, 55 kilometers, it's actually closer to room temperature and pressure than anywhere else in the solar system. Those conditions are relatively clement. The problem with there being life in the upper atmosphere is that it is extraordinarily dry. The amount of water vapor there is so, so low. And all life as we know it is somehow reliant on there being free water. And so we don't know just how inhospitable it is. It seems pretty inhospitable. It may not be the temperature that gets you or the pressure or the acidity, but if it's extremely dry, it's difficult to imagine there being much by way of biology. With each description that you give and each adjective you use for Venus, I am struck by how precious and vulnerable our own planet becomes. It really is. It is. It's unique. And here's the scary thing. So if Venus started off terrible and started off the way it is today, simply by virtue of how close it was to the sun, that holds a very important lesson for our understanding of exoplanets, of extrasolar planets, so that orbit other stars. One of our massive questions we have is, well, how likely is it, are we to find an Earth-like world? I will point out here, and this is a thing I rant about to anyone who'll listen, we have never found an Earth-like world. We have found Earth-sized worlds. But since Venus is 95% the size of Earth, you may as well say Venus size if you say Earth size. And that's a problem because right now we cannot easily distinguish an Earth from a Venus. So if we find a relatively large rocky world orbiting another star, 
if we find out eventually that Venus is the way it is and has always been that way simply because of how close to the sun it was, that gives us some confidence that if we find a Earth-sized world orbiting close to its star, it's probably actually a Venus. However, if we find that Venus started off like Earth and they have a common history of habitability and then something went wrong, capital S for something on Venus, catastrophic volcanic eruptions, whatever, and then Venus was tripped into this runaway greenhouse state, then it, it leads to a really important question. Actually, two. One, how are we going to be able to tell an Earth from a Venus orbiting another star if distance to the sun isn't the answer? And two, is the thing that happened to Venus a once-off, or is the fact that Earth has somehow avoided that fate for four and a half billion years a one-off? And to your question here, your comment about how unique and vulnerable Earth is in the solar system, we are, I think, in the next 20 or 30 years going to learn just how unique and vulnerable Earth is generally. Because if we find after 20 or 30 years that we find lots of Earth-sized worlds, but they're all Venuses, then that really would tell us that whatever has happened to keep us nice and habitable on Earth is probably the exception, not the rule. And that will make our world even more precious than it already is. Paul Byrne, thank you so much for joining us to talk about uh, volcanism and geology on Venus. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Paul Byrne on why Venus is home to a heap of hellish hotheads. He's a professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. So as Paul Byrne says, Venus, yeah, maybe it's Earth's sister planet, but only on the basis of size, not on the basis of the conditions on the surface there. Now, the real problem is that without oceans, there's no place for the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to uh, go. It doesn't get dissolved in any ocean, and it just builds up, making the planet warmer and warmer. Now, Venus has a lot of uh, volcanoes, Seth, but it doesn't have the largest volcano uh Where's that in the solar system? Yeah, well, as far as we know, Molly, the largest volcano in the solar system, it's on Mars. Yeah, kind of a runt of a planet, but it can boast a really big volcano, Olympus Mons. Now, we know that there are no plate tectonics on Mars, and yet it has this enormous volcano. How did it get to be so big? Well, you know, normally you have a, a volcano, it's just sort of a pipe to the uh, innards of a planet. Hot lava comes out and then, you know, spews over the surface. But then on Earth, where you have plate tectonics, the surface sort of moves. I mean, slowly the Pacific plate is moving around, the continents are moving around. So the place where that eruption takes place keeps moving around too, but not on Mars. There's no plate tectonics active there. So this pipe is just always in the same place and it just keeps piling up and piling up solidified lava. But at the moment, it's not erupting, that's for sure. And actually, we don't think it would erupt because Mars is a small planet. It's probably lost most of its internal heat. It's cooled off. Well, one thing you probably can't do in a Venusian volcano, but you certainly can do it on at least one terrestrial volcano, bathe in a lake of lava. It's cold enough that someone fell in once and survived. You know, they kind of swam out of lava. I don't think anyone else can say that. How Earth's volcanoes compare to the showstoppers of our planetary neighbors, next. This episode is Life in the Solar System on Big Picture Science.
The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. There's no place like home. At least that's what astrobiologists have concluded. It's true, we've detected Earth-sized planets outside the solar system, rocky planets in the habitable zone of their home stars, but we don't have evidence that life exists or even could exist there. Within our solar system, Earth is the only body where we know there's life, but our world might have taken another path. We might have gone the way of Venus. It's nice to kind of compare the map of Venus to, well, to any other planet, but Earth in particular, because it kind of shows you like an alternate timeline that Earth could have gone down if it's kind of internal and external, you know, environmental controls went haywire. <laughs> the way I say like, Earth is paradise and Venus is paradise lost. I'm Robin George Andrews. I'm a volcanologist turned freelance science journalist and author of the book, Super Volcanoes, What They Reveal About Earth and the Worlds Beyond. One of the things they reveal is that they may help make a planet habitable. In other words, volcanoes are more than a valve letting heat escape from the interior of a planet or moon. Volcanoes play a special role in making Earth a paradise. The first place that volcanoes were noticed actively erupting anywhere other than Earth was Io, which is a moon of Jupiter. But volcanoes can be kind of found anywhere. And, you know, you can get them on Mars. In fact, the biggest, most expansive volcanoes known to science are found on Mars, which is quite impressive for quite a tiny planet. There are volcanoes probably on a lot of icy moons, although they're not volcanoes in the way we think. It's not really molten rock in the way you think. It's it's just kind of like a weird sort of extraterrestrial mix of ices and slush that's being kind of forced out through various mechanisms. You know, there might be some ice volcanoes on a really, really large asteroid, but whether they're alive or not is one thing. But there's basically volcanism on pretty much every major body we can see except the gas and ice giants, so Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Uranus and Neptune because there isn't really like a solid surface there for anything to come out of. <laughs> but otherwise every other rocky surface or icy surface big enough seems to have a volcano dead or alive on it. So volcanism is everywhere really. Well for example the moon, we've recorded yeah. moon quakes on the moon. Yeah. Does that mean that the moon has volcanoes or does it mean that it has an active tectonic system and what's the difference? Mm. Yeah, so the moon is an odd thing. I mean, the moon is pretty small and, you know, according to all major, like, 
theories of how planets and moons work. It should be like rock solid dead <laughs> on the inside sort of thing. There shouldn't be much heat coming to the surface, much volcanism. There obviously has been a lot of volcanism on the moon. So the, the sort of black patches you see from Earth just looking up with the naked eye, you know, they're giant. They're called the mare, uh, you know, the, the seas. Sailors used to think they're actually seas of water, but actually they're frozen giant seas of, of lava. So there were lots of eruptions on the moon. Maybe up until, you know, recently, at least in terms of the history of the solar system, dinosaurs might have been able to see, like, flashes of eruptions on the moon. Um, but it's a bit different from whether something's seismically active or not. That could be caused by any number of things. It doesn't have to be volcanoes. The moon is pretty much dead. It's pretty much dead. Um, Mars doesn't have any tectonic plates either. There's, like, jigsaw pieces on the surface of the world. But it's still seismically active and, you know, things are creaking under there and there's a debate as to whether that's magma moving about or not. So in truth, no one really knows for sure, but just that if you have somewhere that is capable of producing eruptions in the past, you can't really rule out there being eruptions in the future. They just might not be as frequent as they used to be. You obviously have an affection for uh, volcanoes <laughs> and you call studying them a kind of time travel. Why is that? Well, because you know, it, planets can't really be built without volcanism. So the first draft of a planet is made by the really molten, mushy stuff on the inside coming onto the outside and kind of painting like first kind of rocky canvas uh, kind of thing. And it's, a, you know, a lot of the water that makes a lot of our oceans and things. Yes, some of it probably had a cosmic origin, but, you know, plenty of it probably came from inside the planet. So what on one case, scientifically, volcanoes basically let you... They kind of preserve a moment in, in time that's not like even close to like the tininess of human history, like over billions of years. So if you kind of find these, these sarcophagi of like old, you know, very ancient molten rock, um, then you can kind of read the history of, of an entire planet and compare it to others. Like why did this planet, why is Earth really habitable, but Venus right next door is awful, you know, why... Does Mars have the biggest volcanoes on the planet, but now it looks like it's dead? Like, what's happening? You can use it in a way of time travel scientifically to, like, determine why worlds thrive and why others, you know, basically trash themselves. But on a, on a kind of human level, any human or any, any record of people observing an eruption, you know, even though you could separate that by thousands of years of time, like someone thousands of years ago seeing an eruption and writing about it or making a painting of it, even though their scientific understanding is completely minimal compared to what we have now, volcanoes always produce that same sense of awe, which is that kind of joy mixed with terror generally, you know. Is some of what is being spewed out of volcanoes, is it millions, billions of years old? Is it material from that first forging of the planet? Yeah, I mean, everything on the planet is just kind of recycled stuff that was originally there in the first place, you know. Even recently, I mean, if you go through like ice caves in well, in Iceland, right at the base of Hekla, which is a famously dangerous volcano, in these beautiful ice caves, you can see these really thin layers of ash, which look quite gentle, but actually, but actually are the kind of epitaph of a really violent eruption, <laughs> you know, sort of thing. So it's really hard to get rid of the signs of volcanoes. Robin, when we hear about the volcanism elsewhere in the solar system, it's, mm. it's pretty impressive. And now I think we're wondering, how does Earth compare? I mean, can we claim volcanoes or processes that are unique or notable? Yeah, oh, and abso absolutely. I mean, like, I mean, obviously, I might be biased as an Earthling, but I think Earth's volcanism is 
easily the coolest um, and the most impressive. Why is that? Make the case for us. Yeah, so, I mean, just aesthetically, the eruptions on Earth, you have underwater volcanoes, you know, which produces these kind of, like, strange, amorphous, like, creatures that bubble out and kind of fizzle out. And you have volcanoes that obviously cause... Like giant explosions, like the the eruption in Tonga, um, obviously not too long ago. I mean, fortunately, you know, I think only three people died, considering it was the biggest recorded explosion, I think, in human history. That's pretty impressive. Um, natural explosion. But that shockwave, you know, from this underwater volcano circled the world so many times. It, like, set off seismometers all the way on the other side of the world, caused, like, the Mediterranean Sea to wobble. You know, it's kind of... We've got front row seats to really kind of dynamic weird processes that kind of reveal what's going on like inside the earth i mean there's there's aldonia lengai in tanzania as well is like a volcano that erupts like almost jet black lava and it's cold enough that someone fell in once and survived which is a weird you know they kind of swam out of lava i don't think anyone else can say that um obviously do not fall into lava it's just so strange and occasionally like it throws like gemstones into the air, it freezes in midair. We have yeah. to trust but verify that lava claim. I mean, I guess if the lava <laughs> were bath temperature, <laughs> no, you could was, swim was, through lava. Was, well, the thing is, the reason they could swim was because it was, uh, it was about 400 Celsius, which obviously is very hot, um, but not immediately lethal necessarily, depending on how you fall in. And it's actually, I think, 10 times more fluid than water. So... It's not thick and gloopy like a custard, like most lava. Most lava you'd fall on and get stuck in. But that you can kind of like feasibly push yourself out. So, you know, the guy was horribly burnt, but like he, he actually is the only person who's fallen into lava like that and lived. So it's kind of a crazy thing. But <laughs> I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about the connection between um, volcanoes and life on this planet. In your book, yeah. you write that in order to understand why Earth is a veritable paradise, we have to understand what is happening below. What is the connection? I mean, why is Earth a veritable paradise and what does that have to do with volcanoes? So, yeah, one of the, I mean, you know, on a, on a very like foundational level, you know, you can't really have a planet build itself without volcanoes kind of thing. They are the original uh, sculptors of a planet kind of thing. They kind of make continents, the big bits of rock that don't really get recycled. And, you know, if volcanoes erupt in the ocean, they create islands and archipelagos. But they also bring like gases to the surface. So they make the first draft of an atmosphere. They also bring a lot of water to the surface. So, you know, they basically carve out a planet that then if life does happen to take root, then you've got this really dynamic canvas to work with. And speaking of life, I think not originally, but not, not too long ago, people were like, ah, oh, yes, life came from this like primordial soup of kind of chemicals. Um, whereas I think most people now lean towards like, if there's gonna be one place on earth you have to bet, if you have to bet your money on it, people will probably point towards the kind of hydrothermal vents you have in the ocean because you've got still quite, you know, not primitive is not the right word really, because they're very like advanced what they do, but very like biologically straightforward forms of life um, that live around these vents. And not just bacteria and archaea, which is like another kingdom. And, but you have like, you know, crabs and, and squid and sea creatures that ha somehow live in environments that are unbelievably extreme, um, which is why we call these life extremophiles, you know, really hot, really acidic, uh, often really saline kind of thing. And often if you have a combination of these, you still find life, like life is just everywhere. It's hilariously hard to get rid of it. You know, it's once it's there, it seems impossible to just like sterilize off and the universe has tried, still going. 
so volcanoes not only create like this canvas for life to take hold if, if it happens to be there, they may have provided the chemicals, the kind of thermal environment in which life could have first been naturally synthesized, you know, and still be thriving today. Those hydrothermal vents create a kind of crucible of like pressure yeah. and heat and chemistry. But but I want to challenge it a little bit because mm-hmm. um, one would think that volcanoes, you know, witness Venus, would make a world inhospitable. And I don't know how it plays out in balance, but with their noxious gases, as you said, and their belching of ash and magma, they seem like nothing but forces of destruction. And after all, the largest... Earth's largest extinction event, the Permian extinction 250 million years ago, uh, was due to volcanic eruptions and 90% of life was extinguished. So on balance, do volcanoes, you know, snuff out life more than they provide a, a, a world that is makes life possible? Well, you know, it's like everything good, everything in life, you know, for the most extent, do things in moderation and you'll be fine kind of thing. I mean, in terms of the so in terms of like the universe, whether volcanoes are mainly a force for after the creative events that, that kind of craft the planet, you know, are just volcanoes mainly a force for destructiveness or good or, or like um, habitability is an unknown question. Probably one of the greatest questions. I mean, that's why Venus is so fascinating, because that's what happened if Earth's volcanoes went haywire uh, and Earth is where they haven't. But in terms of like Earth, like volcanoes, I mean, in terms of like a, an existential scale, I mean, we're still here. <laughs> Everything's still here. So Earth, Earth's volcanoes haven't yet done anything apocalyptic in that sense. They got close, obviously, during the, the great dying mass extinction. You know, that was obviously very distressing at the time. But um, at least these things would happen on a time scale. It's not like the switch has just turned on and that's it. You know, these, these mass extinctions don't happen like instantaneously. Unless you're a really, really big asteroid, but that's a different thing. Um, they happen like over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. So, you know, humans have only been around for what? You know, modern humans have only been around for maybe a million years, you know, roughly. You know, we're hopefully if uh, we see the signs of like a, a, a huge mass extinction, like eruption starting to pour out of, I don't know, Siberia again or India or somewhere, you know, we'll have a hundred thousand years to figure out a way to kind of do something. Robin Andrews, it was really fun talking to you. I hope you do not go diving into any pools of magma without first taking the temperature of those pools. Thank you so much for talking to us. Well, thanks for having me. Always good fun. Robin George Andrews is a journalist and the author of Super Volcanoes, What They Reveal About Earth and the Worlds Beyond. Well, Seth, that brings us to the big picture in the show. And what it sounds like is that geology plays an important role in making a planet habitable. Well, of course, geology plays an important role in in a planet's ability to support life. After all, it's geology that defines the environment in which life has to both, you know, begin and survive. I wonder if we could summarize then some of the reasons why volcanoes in particular are important in making a planet habitable. Uh, to begin with, when people ask, well, where did the oceans on Earth come from? Or the atmosphere, right? It, you know, the, the Earth wasn't born with oceans on it. And uh, these things, the atmosphere and the oceans, most likely got shot out of volcanoes a long time ago, all that material. So uh, that's pretty important. <laughs> pretty important that you have oceans if you want to get life going. But also they might provide hot chemical stews, such as those we find in hydrothermal vents, where life could form. Well, I think that this is true of almost anything, any, if you will, 
activity, chemical activity, whatever, uh, that's connected with biology, yes, it's gradients that you want to have. It's changes. You, you want to be where the action is, and the action is always on the edge. It's where things change quickly, either in time or in distance. A restless planet has that kind of action, things at the edges that have produced the disequilibrium that's necessary to cook up complicated molecules that eventually you would define as life. Yeah, and something that wouldn't be obvious. If you were looking for life off Earth, you might not think, well, let's look for the volcanoes first. But the lesson here is that biology favors a restless planet. Well, this show would not be possible without the restless talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from the Breakthrough Prize Foundation, Lauren Trottier, Rena Shulsky-David, and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates other bodies in the cosmos. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. And this episode of Big Picture Science, looking at why what's below our feet allows for the biology above, is called Life in the Solar System. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.